0: Diego Castro looking for the angle, oh super, Diego Castro, take a bow, chance it against Petoskey, he's done it, but he the across the front of the defender intelligently, And Keogh puts Perth in front, Merger, story of the champion. Hi guys and thanks very much indeed for downloading this latest episode of the Inside Glory podcast. Gareth Morgan with you and I'm delighted to be able to introduce the latest in our Project 25 series which is marking the club's 25th anniversary. This time we catch up with Bob Fig. Now many of you will be extremely familiar with Bob. He has basically worked either for the club or covering the club for the entire 25 years of glorious history. There's not much he hasn't done, to be honest, in that period. He's been media manager, team manager, program editor, a boundary rider, radio reporter, and on one occasion, as he tells us in this podcast, he was actually drafted in as referee for a pre-season friendly. Now, this podcast is also available in its video form at perthglory.com.au. But for now, let's get straight over to Bob and hear his glory story. Bob, fantastic to see you mate. Thanks very much for coming in. You've, you've made a series of outrageous demands regarding sparkling mineral water, etc. I expected that.
1: Nobody will believe I was asking for mineral water. Vodka possible.
0: <laughs> right, let's, let's go. 1996. You're in on the ground floor. You're writing and editing the match day programme, etc. How did, how did it come about? How was your involvement founded as it
1: well, it was literally, we'd been involved with the Sampdoria trip, friend and I, so we'd worked for the promoter of the Sampdoria visit. Um, and as part of that process, obviously, we interacted a lot with Glory. And um, I went to Nick Tanner and said, you're going to need match programs, and um, I'd like to do them. So my wife, Danny, sold the ads, I did the writing. Nick was, like everybody else in the club, they really didn't have any idea of how it was going to go. Um, so we, in the end, had to stop selling ads because the program was getting too big. We had to put a limit on the pages, and it just took off. And, and for me, it was a, the start of a relationship with the club that has lasted over well, 25 years. Over 25 years, um, nearly as long as my marriage. And probably they're just as happy with me as Danny is.
0: Now you had a football background to start with didn't you? It wasn't as if you you came in cold. Can you tell us a little bit about your your background in the UK?
1: Well in the UK I mean I played when I was a kid. I was a big Ipswich town fan and we went home and away and I'd done some local reporting. Um, But when I came to Australia it was hard to even follow the results back in those days. Um, By a very circuitous route via Esperance I ended up as editor of British Soccer Week which was published here in Perth and went out all over the world, covering all the um, UK football, England, Scotland, all the divisions, non-league. and it was hugely popular, 26 different countries. Um, and that was the beginning of my involvement in covering the game in general. Um, then on radio on 6 R, we were bringing in live commentary from the BBC on, on what was then Division One. And um, it sort of escalated from there. I was going back every year and um, for about four years covering from the League Cup final through the FA Cup final, we broadcast live from Wembley and all sorts of wonderful things I'd never dreamed um, I'd be involved in, had a great time. And part of that, uh, because I was the editor, Ray Gatter the Australian was ringing around when Glory were starting up, asking about crowds and how they'd go. And I said, they're gonna go gangbusters. Nobody can imagine how big they'll be. They'll get five to 10,000 people. And Ray saw a laugh because everybody else he'd spoken to was talking about 1,500, 2,000 um and so that led me into my involvement with the club um, in the build-up to the start of the nsl um, where i ended up actually refereed one pre-match friendly pre-season friendly when the referee didn't turn up um, i was down on the training ground every week and perhaps my happiest memory is walking down to the ground that first game day with my eldest robbie who's now doing um, various work for glory funnily enough on match days Um, and holding his hand as we walked down and the buzz was fantastic. Um, It all started from there.
0: So on that that opening day, that first ever game, as you said, you're walking down towards the ground, there is that buzz of excitement. Was there a little bit of apprehension as well?
1: I don't think there was by then. I think there there was a buzz around the whole um, endeavor that had started to build. Uh, Nick Tarner and Paul Afkos were absolute gun owners. Nick's marketing now was I still, still think I'm paralleled in Australian football right to this day. Um, and they'd really got the, the, fired up the imagination. And from that first game, the crowd walking down was absolutely like being in England. No doubt about it. Awesome. Never thought I'd feel that in Australia. And, and the crowd then drove the media interest. People like Clint Wilden, who was at Channel 10 then at the ABC, they took cameras into what was then the hill. And the atmosphere on match day was just unbelievable. Um, Nick and Paul had made it a, a full entertainment experience, bands and all this sort of thing. They'd made a, an oval miraculously into an almost acceptable place to watch football. So I, I think pr- just prior to the game there was some expectation and then Glory just blew those expectations away overcoming. coming season. It wasn't immediate, it wasn't that first week, but over that season it just built and built.
0: So as that media interest built, when Bern Stanger Came to the club did he almost take that media interest to a, to a next level how was it working with him
1: yeah it was really interesting because i was covering the club then on radio um, and i wasn't working in the club um, but i remember the Orch- the old orchard hotel the press conference where they announced burned as coach and i ended up sitting next to george grilicic from 6pr and george was as football oriented afl oriented as they come and he just turned to me and he said this guy's gonna blow the blow WA away. And immediately he had that charisma. And of course the old story is that Mish D'Avray was in, originally intended to be the coach, Byrne the assistant. And apocryphal as it may be, Nick then met up with the both of them and said, look, Byrne's got a wow factor here. Can I get you, uh, Mish, to take a, a back, you know, the assistant's role and we'll give the monkey to Burn?" Now I don't know if that's actually true, um, but it was a masterstroke. Um, the kiss in the police woman, um, at the whacker, all of those sorts of things burned as a, as a, a, a PR um, benefit to the club was absolutely immense. Uh, top bloke, um, and it was a shame, I think, if probably some of the players would say wasn't. Um, the coaching level wasn't as, as high as the reputation, but that didn't matter in those days. You were selling the game as much as playing it, and he did an awesome job for Perth Glory.
0: As you said by that time you've moved into radio broadcasting, having been so intrinsically involved in the club in those early days, was it, was it hard to then cover, cover the club for an external broadcaster? Yeah look I
1: think it's a very different role um, and over the years it's probably cost a couple of friends because you've got to be straightforward and honest, you've got to try and not be biased. Um, but it was, it was a great involvement for me, again it was something I never really thought about doing guy called Martin Wells got me involved with one, what was then 100FM. Um, we did those games. Um, I did the Wollongong game. We were doing updates, the Wollongong Grand Final. We were doing updates into ABC Radio, Grandstand, not commentary, because 6PR had exclusive rights. And Karen Tai threw to me at the end of extra time, because we were giving them an update, and said, oh, we'll stay with you for the penalty shootout, with no warning. And I thought, oh, this is going to be fun. I'd scrawled out a list of five takers each and it ended up, I think, 13, 12, um, but what an experience. And, and you have to be neutral then, and I thought they'd probably hear me crying over the microphone, um, but the next day on AM, that's how big that game was, on the OBS's prime um, national radio current affairs morning program, I woke up to hear my voice being replayed as we replayed the last of the penalties and, and the Wollongong celebration, so it was pretty neutral, um, but hard.
0: It must have been incredibly hard because you've got personal relationships with virtually everyone that's involved in that groundfight. It must have been—you know what that means to the players. You know what they've gone through to get there. Yeah. It Must have been hugely difficult. To, yeah. Like I said,
1: remaining—it was incredibly difficult. I caught up, funny enough, with Clint Wilden outside the ground after we would all finished doing our, our jobs, and it was like we'd flicked a switch from professional to fans. Um, we were both gutted, um, as indeed was everybody else at the club. Um, I think saving grace was what it had done for football because there is, I think, that Perth Gorey were the, the first influence that headed us towards the A League. That grand final, I think, was the, the biggest single signal that we needed a proper league. There was a capacity for it, um, there was a desire among fans to watch it, um, and that really changed the tide. Um, in favour of what became the uh, FFA and the ALA.
0: Now, plenty of stories and myths around that 2000 grand final. One of, the, one of the biggest ones regards Bern Stanger and whether he did or did not go into the changer room at half-time. Do you have any insight on that particular
1: story? I, I genuinely don't. Um, I know that subsequently it was fairly obvious that taking off three of your best players during a grand final because you're nil no, up was a horrendous error. Uh, of judgement by him. I think though Wollongong don't get enough credit, when it's put down to what Glory did or didn't do, to come back in that situation from 3-0 down in a grand final um, deserves enormous credit and they did a wonderful job to do it. And then um, Les Pogliacomo, the goalkeeper, um, was just fantastic in the shootout. And I think sometimes we get caught up in what Glory did or didn't do. The Wollongong Wolves were immense. That day and thoroughly deserved it to win it.
0: Right. So moving ahead, then by 2001, you're working directly for the club again, this time as a as a media consultant. Correct. Uh, and Mish Davray asks you to be the team manager as well, which is an interesting combination. How did you find balancing those two roles?
1: Well, it was really interesting. First off, it was an immense honour. I mean, I'd met Mish. I saw Mish make his home debut for Ipswich. And when he came, I'd never seen so many Ipswich Town fans. I didn't know there were any other Ipswich fans in Perth. Um, and I, I mentioned I'd seen him play, and I actually, because I'm a nerd, I know who he'd made his home debut against, who he'd made his debut against away. And he realised that either I was a stalker, um, or I was, you know, a genuine football guy. And we went out, took him away, and, and Ange, his wife, and the two sons, because they were the same age as our boys, took him out around Perth, went to the water ski park, actually. And I said, we're not going to talk football all day. And oddly enough, the first and only time in our relationship, we didn't. Um, but it helped them bed in, I think, a little bit. And they're still, our sons are still lifelong friends, which is magnificent. We're still friends of the Davres. Um, Combining the two jobs, I said immediately, Mish introduced me, you know, as players knew I was coming on to do the media. We're in the dressing room. He said, I've asked Bob to be team manager. Uh, and I said, look, I've accepted. One of the things I won't do is I won't be in the dressing room and I won't be on the bench, which is team managers, had been previously because you couldn't compromise that sanctity of the dressing room Um, and I couldn't do both jobs like within that scope I couldn't be in the dressing room and then do my job relating to the media afterwards because I'd have to keep stuff from them so um, that's that's how we worked it and it worked out really well the players were fantastic Um, you know really good they never shirked a media duty um, and in terms of the team manager stuff, I think they knew I had Mish's 100% backing. So if there were any little issues about going to events or whatever and I said, come on, just got to go, they didn't push because they knew at the end of the day Mish would back me. Um, so um, I was very lucky to do two jobs. And, and without doubt, one of the biggest benefits, which I didn't realise at the time, was as a team manager, you get a winner's medal. So that was pretty good.
0: Well, that brings us very, Didn't dream it's, of that.
1: This, it's almost like we've rehearsed this, Bob, <laughs> but that's
0: a, a very, very handy segue into where is your winner's medal Well, of course, of 2005? course,
1: I, you know, I wouldn't keep it on me at all times. That would be ridiculous. But it just so happens that today I've got it here, so I'll do my only little look to the camera. So these are the, it's 2003-04, and you've got one for being champions and one for being premiers. Um, and they were presented on the pitch at uh, Parramatta. Um, so that was a wonderful experience and, and worthy, as, as my family reminds me, I got mine for making sure that the team got on the right bus.
0: Absolutely. Now, I, prior to getting involved uh, in this interview, we discussed the, the 2003 and 2004 grand final. As you said, so the 2003 was relief, 2004 jubilation. Can you just elaborate on the almost the not contrasting emotions, but slightly different emotions. Yeah, look,
1: it's I no think. doubt. So Mish had come in and, and we got to the grand final against the Olympic the previous year. They'd come over here and, and beaten us. Um, Glory were labelled chokers. They were never going to win a grand final. They didn't have what it took to win finals. And that bit a little bit with the players. So the following year, we're back at, at Subi this time facing Olympic at home. Um, And it was a very interesting build-up. Mish said, look, the players get distracted during the week. They focus perhaps too, they get too nervous. What can we do? And he said, I want them to go and have a beer and a meal on the Thursday night before the grand final. Bit bit radical. Um, Sending them out and encouraging them to have a beer. So he also said, I want someone to speak. And Mish had been offered uh, Buddhist monks, sports psychologists, uh, politicians, Loads of people had suggestions about who should speak. And he said, I want you to get John Worsfold, who was coach of the West Coast Eagles. And I thought, oh, great. Nice, easy ask. Um, I ran Gary Stocks, who was the PR guy, and I think he still is at the West Coast Eagles. And he said, look, that is literally the Thursday night is John's only night off of the week. I doubt he'll do it, but I'll ask him. Came back to me a couple of hours later and said, John will do it, but he'll only be able to stay half an hour. So we did a bit of a contra deal with the TV show we were doing on Channel 31, myself and my wife were running. Um, Got the restaurant to put on the meal, raided the club stores for some sponsors' product um, for BYO, turned up at the restaurant. Players didn't know who was coming. In walks John Worsfold. He was superb. If there was a secret weapon in glory winning that final, it was John Worsfold. He spoke at the player level about how to overcome a defeat in a grand final and win one, which is of course what the Eagles had been through when he was playing. He talked about avoiding distractions and focusing on the match, not the peripherals. Um, and players don't often admit it, I don't think, but there were players there, hardened top pros who hung off his every word and it really hit home because he'd walked the walk. Um, and I think the mood changed. and but when we actually went in, I was calling the game on radio for a community radio station. And Alice Edwards um, was my co-commentator. He was injured, couldn't play. And when it was 2-0, he threw off the headphones, stom- and stormed out of the commentary box to go and join in the celebrations, which were 20 minutes away. Thanks, Al. Um, but, yeah, they won. I went down. And, and there's an enormous and unimaginable situation for me. There we are in the middle of Subie Oval. Uh, was it thirty eight thousand people, that season? you're looking up, you can find out where your family's sitting, you can see them and be part of that. It was great, but the overwhelming sense in the dressing rooms afterwards was relief. People, there was like this huge sigh, thank God we've done it. It's great that we've won it, but more than anything else, it's a, it's a relief. Um, we had a decent celebration down in Leaderville. Um, and I don't mind admitting, I'd sneaked out and my wife came found me and I was in tears outside. That's the joy of good people in that squad who'd been labelled chokers and they were never going to be grand final winners, for them to win was fantastic. Um, but it was very much that sense of relief. Parramatta was, we were written off, Parramatta were giving contracts to players for two or three years when everybody knew that the NSL had one year to go. They took Simon Colosimo and Andre Gunprecht from Glory. They threw money left, right and centre. There were senior Glory players, household names, who played for about a third of their agreed wages to get the club through that final season. Um, we were beaten here heavily by Paramount, 4-2, I think. Everybody rode us off. I was in a taxi on the way after that game going in to drown my sorrows. And the guy I shared a taxi with, a guy called John Henry, fantastic singer in the Perth scene, he said, oh, they're going to get hammered. And I said, i bet you 100 bucks we win. We went over that week. Um, I went over and paid my own way to go with Mish for the pre-match press conferences. Nick Theodoricopoulos, the Parramatta coach, sat there and said, oh, we've got the kickoff time we want. We've got the home ground that we wanted. Soccer Australia is doing everything we want. And Mish, very deadpan, just looked at the media and said, well, I suppose we're just here to make up the numbers. And I reckon when they went back, I wasn't in the rooms, but I wouldn't be at all surprised that Mish didn't make a thing then of, you've been written off, nobody expects you to win. Um, And they went out and they beat them. And it was an absolute euphoric celebration. That was the one where it was celebrated. It was no relief. That was seen by the players themselves as just an incredible achievement.
0: And was the nature of that victory in some way, did that make it Even more jubilant because you know, with a golden goal, it's just that split second, and suddenly that realization that.
1: Yes, you're absolutely right. The instant success was was very important. Um, Also, the season they'd been through, and I genuinely, and I'm biased, think it was one of the most underrated triumphs by a club in any sport in Australia. That season they played. Um, all of their home games except one in the last half of the season. We had one game up at June The stadium was being rebuilt, um, or built, um, HBF as it was then, or NIB or Perth Oval. Um, and so that meant, in effect, you had a hub long before COVID. And the travel demands for all of the away games being jammed in the first half of the season were extraordinary. They lost Scotty Miller and Matt Horsley to season ending injuries. Um, and then on goes this guy, Nicky Merger, to score the winner. And the interesting thing is, Alan McKenzie, scorer of the first ever NSL goal for Perth Glory. Um, Mish and I were sitting at my house when we lived in Cloverdale, having a coffee. Um, and Mish asked me about Nick Merger, because he knew I went to watch Bayswater a fair bit. He said, what's he like, you know, should we sign him? Um, knock on the door, it's Alan McKenzie, who being a footballer and they're very weird, has run, He's doing a fitness run and has run from Bayswater to Cloverdale, stops off. And I said to Mish, have a chat with this bloke, because he's the one to tell you whether or not to sign Nicky. And Alan said, yeah, raw, quick, right environment, right teacher, he'll be a player. And so Mish decided pretty much on the strength of that to sign Nicky Merger. About 10 to 15 minutes before the end of normal time, we're in Parramatta, we're sitting up in a commentary box because Mish didn't like being near the, on the sideline, he liked to be up above the action. So it's him and myself in a commentary box, at Parramatta Stadium. Mish thumps the desk, stands up and says, this is Nicky Merger's year, stomps off down the stairs, go to the bench, pulls off Bobby Despotovsky. Imagine that, you've taken De- Despotowski off in a grand final going into sudden death. In fact, it was just, you, yeah, and so on went Nicky um, and scores the winner. So Alan McKenzie, score of NSL, First NSL goal for Perth Glory. His recommendation ends up with the guy who wins a grand final for Glory with their last ever NSL goal. Um, nice bit of symmetry to that.
0: Absolutely, absolutely, man. Now, you've given us some great insights into, into Mish Davre. Could you sum up his coaching style? What made Mish Davre the success he was as a coach, do you think?
1: I think he was extremely disciplined with the players. He brought people in around him who he trusted and and really valued particularly alan vest um, as his assistant coach um, he always wanted alan as his assistant he went and sought him out persuaded him to to come out of almost retirement uh, and do the job and they were just a great team vest he'd put his arm around players he'd comfort them mish would be the growler and and you know put turn the hairdryer on if needed um, he was particularly harsh on someone like Nicky, for example because he wanted him to get the best out of himself um, but I think he knew his um, way of playing it was 4-4-2 didn't mind too much if the opposition had the ball I could have 70% of possession but what he wanted was when we had it we scored goals Damien Murray and Bobby were lethal um, it, was a, it was what you'd probably call in the modern era quite a basic style of football but it worked and my goodness they had some good players um, and it wasn't long ball football the triangles people like Brad Hassel Scotty Miller David Tarker would would you know come together and form, um, and worth remembering in the NSL, not unlike the A League, you need a coach who can rebuild season to season. So they lost um, uh, Simon Klaseman Gunprak to Parramatta. He brought in four or five players from Olympic um, to replace them, and he also said, right, they're all rooming with existing squad players. They're not rooming together because he didn't want cliques. Little things like that. He he had a very strong commanded detail, meals, traveling, when when they'd eat, what they'd eat, all of those sorts of things, which is seen as very modern. Um, but he had all of that, and he had that ability to judge which player needed an arm around him and which one needed a, a boot up the backside. Um, I, and ha- It still astonishes me, and I'm his mate, so I'm, I'm again biased. I'm amazed that no A-League club ever came and said, Where's the guy who won the last two grand finals in the NSL? Again, an underrated achievement. The big myth was Gary spent all the money, and perhaps in the early years they did. I think Gary Morocchi would disagree with me, though, because he worked on the sniff of an oily rag. Um, but in those seasons when they won it, Olympics spent more money that year. Parramatta outspent everyone in the league in that final season. So I think it's an underrated achievement. And I know Mish Davray, the first person he would talk about is Alan Vest. The two of them together were just an amazing combination.
0: Right, mate. On a a slightly less positive note, if you like, um, which players were difficult to deal with?
1: I can honestly say, and cross my heart, hope to die, none of them. I got them really well with all of them. They knew behind me that Mish would back me up. Um, There were... Nicky Merger was a... An entertaining bloke, he came from Gossies, um, but a top guy to be around and and you had to keep him in line a little bit. And probably some of the younger players every now and again. The rest of them, the level of professionalism. I mean, Bobby retired or announced his retirement about three times during the last two seasons. And funny enough, every time, it was when there was some sort of media pressure going on other people or on the club, and he'd step up and he'd do the retirement story. Um, Bobby, now I'm not sure if I'm gonna shatter anyone's illusions here, but he actually was Glory Gorilla. During a visit to a school at Kalgoorlie, uh, we're on a pre-season tour, we took the suit. Bobby Despotovsky, possibly one of the best-known sports people in Western Australia at the time, puts on the Glory suit around a primary school. You can imagine how he got treated. Puts his hand up to do it. Jamie Harmwell put on a Santa suit to take part in a pre- uh, penalty shootout with the then-premier Jeff Gallup um that's the sort of squad we had they were all committed to each other um, and one guy i do want to mention and it'll sound a bit weird vince matassa who was a reserve goalkeeper didn't play a game um, in the seasons when they won grand finals his work off the pitch bringing the squad together running the fines doing the social events just amazing um, and that really was that that was the level of commitment that people had. I can honestly say, perhaps because we were winning two out of the three years, that they were a fantastic squad. You had no one you had to really, really worry about.
0: Now, you're still covering glory to this day for the ABC, still bump into your match day, which is always great fun. How much does it still mean to you personally, this football?
1: Uh, I, uh, the, the gratitude this state, and most people like myself should have to people like Nick Tarner, and Paul Afkos, and I know Nick and Paul fell out, um, but I, I think they have sort of started to reconcile a little bit. I hope so, because what they did together was amazing. Um, Nick Tarner, uh, his wife Eleanor, unsung hero, did all the rooms, got all the um, sponsors' rooms ready, the lunch rooms and everything, the, the function rooms ready on match days. Paul was around driving forklifts, putting up ad hoardings a day before the game. Um, they gave everything to form the club and get it going. Nick took it on and Tony Sage nowadays, I'll be critical of of Tony if I think it's required and and he's got um, an attitude about him that can make life exciting for all around him. But that commitment that they've all shown and the money they've put into the club is magnificent. And someone like me, I go along um, nowadays when I'm doing ABC or if I get a game off, um, I'll go with my my sons with Alex and and, and Robbie, uh, two, two of my three sons who love football and we sit there and funny enough, we sit there quite often with either Mish or Mish and uh, John Mark, his eldest, who loves his football. We're still there. Um, the Glory Shed Supporters Club, still there. It's formed um, an institution in Perth and I think to go from where it was, uh, it's taken football to a new level. As I said before, I think it was the absolute catalyst for, for the A-League that we have now which has been enormously successful right up to the last couple of years and I think is set for a, a new wave of success uh, moving forward. So Perth Glory has been immense and, and everybody who's played their part at, every, at any level within the club and among the supporters over 25 years um, deserves credit for that.
0: And Glory against Ipswich is in a friendly, is that
1: your dream fixture? <laughs> no, I wouldn't know who to support. I'd have to tip a nil-nil draw because whenever I back any team that I follow, uh, then they win. The only exception being that Parramatta Grand Final, whereas I was absolutely convinced we were going to win that from a week out, no doubt about it. But yeah, um, Ipswich. I I was very lucky. The time when I was following Ipswich, um, I went for nearly 20 years with my dad, season tickets, and saw an FA was it an FA Cup final? Was it a UEFA Cup final? Had some fantastic times watching them. Um, and then to be part of, well, all but one of the uh, Glory Grand Finals, either within the club or working in the media. Uh, the only one I wasn't part of was in Brisbane. Um, it's been a, just a, a joy. So I reckon I'd probably just about nudge Glory to win it, but I want Mesh Davre to play for Ipswich.
0: If you had to pick two or three of uh, favourite players from both the NSL
1: and A League eras, who would, uh, who would be? Who'd be in your selection can i have 20 no seriously it's, that is such a hard question to answer because i'm going to offend about 100 people but uh vinko bulyabasic from the old era was just wonderful worst day of my football covering career was the days they got broken um lovely bloke uh and a very silky footballer um, and just a really good person so it's so him um, bobby Despotovski, longevity influence on the club Johnny Warren uh, medal winner in the A-League and should have won probably a couple in the the NSL days, no doubt about that. Um, In the modern era, absolutely, Diego Castro. um, Just a wonderful, wonderful footballer, one who just you just go, (gasps) every time he gets the ball and that's the best player of all to watch. Um, I'd like to mention Sam Kerr. Commentating on her games was just a joy and an absolute privilege for me. Um, And across both eras, both on and off the pitch, Jamie Harmwell. I remember Jamie Harmwell, blonde streaks in his hair like an old badger, playing in the state team against Gloria. And Gary Morocchi didn't want to sign him, as with all coaches, they want players who they think are better than what they've already got. No disrespect to Jamie, um, and no disrespect to Gary's judgment. So Byrne came in, got Jamie on board. Um, He played. Uh, he took his ability, and I think Jamie would be the first to, to say it, he took a level of ability and, and magnified it with effort um, and desire and belief in himself and did fantastically well. Won a grand final, left the club. When we were looking for a, a centre half in the, the final season, um, he just I said to Michel, he's just finished a stint in Asia, the, the devil you know, and, and there was a couple of options and missed when way I thought about it, re-signed Jamie, and he was a core part of the second win. Um, so, and right across the history of the club, up front, played anywhere, did anything. Um, so I think Jamie's a special player. So Vinco, Bobby, uh, Diego, and Jamie Harmore.
0: Fine selection, Bob. Thanks very much. Thank you. <laughs> Mate, it's always a pleasure to talk for It's been you.
1: great fun, and, and thank you for the, the invitation um, to reflect on what for me was always a bit of a surprising... Uh, diversion in in my life and career um, and an absolutely fantastic one it's just a great pleasure
0: so there you have it Bob Figg the latest guest in our project 25 series and what an absolute pleasure it was to catch up with him and hear all those fascinating insights into glory over the past 25 years that is it for today's episode but we'll be back early in the new year with another from the project 25 series in the meantime wishing you all the very best for Christmas and the new year. Hope it's a great 2022. Thanks very much indeed once again for downloading the Inside Dory podcast.
1: Diego Castro looking for the angle. Oh, super. Diego Castro take a bow.
0: Chance against yeah! He's done it. He Across the front of the defender intelligently. Andy Keogh puts Perth in front. Merger!